Welcome to Bluegrass Stories with Howard Parker and me. I'm Katie Daly. In this episode, Howard talks with Stan Werben, co-founder and owner of Elderly Instruments. Elderly started in 1971 in a rented room in a fraternity house and has grown to a thriving business with over 60 employees working in a 35,000-square-foot building in East Lansing, Michigan. Elderly started with a few older fretted instruments and today offers new, used, and vintage instruments, as well as accessories and instructional materials. It's a great success story, 49 years in the making. Okay, well, the the story actually begins in Ann Arbor, Michigan, um, where I was going to school. I was going to graduate school, and uh, my partner-to-be was was, uh, doing undergraduate, and um, and we, uh, we... we knew each other by then, by the time we both were graduating. And uh, uh, basically we started, um, we both graduated around the same time. Uh, uh, I actually, I mean, I got a master's and, and didn't really want to work in the field I was in. And, um, uh, and she had a, had a degree and, and also kind of, we were both kind of at loose ends. What do we want to do now? And we, you know, we, we were both very interested in music and I played a, lot, a fair bit of music uh, at the Ark. The Ark was uh, and still is a, a, a pretty well-known coffee house in Ann Arbor. Um, gone through a lot of changes over the years, but it's still there, thank goodness. And and um, and and I started talking about, you know, uh, from what I've heard, and I didn't know enough to be a hundred percent to like believe this, other than that I'd heard it. Uh, you know, the, the older instruments, the older, especially acoustic guitars, banjos, mandolins, and even mm-hmm. electric guitars were better than, than the new ones. And, uh, and we basically, we said, you know, why don't we, why don't we search around? Let's, let's just, you know, we, we, we got into a car and searched around, found pawn shops and secondhand stores and all that sort of thing. Even did some advertising in the, in the penny savers around the state of Michigan. And um, and we went looking for used instruments, thinking that well, you know, uh, if if we can get anything pretty good, you know, the I guess you know it, it, when you when you start to do something like that, you think, oh, I'm going to go to a junk shop and find a five dollar Lloyd Laura mandolin, you know, and <laughs> it doesn't really work that way. You mostly you, you you don't see a whole lot of anything any really good, but we you know we saw enough stuff and we got enough stuff. Uh, at a reasonable enough price, or we thought a reasonable enough price, because we actually didn't know what things were worth. Um, but you know, we bought a whole bunch of instruments, and uh, you know, got them together and and tried to fix them up if they needed any fixing up, and uh, started selling them. And how 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 much did you did you guys actually know about vintage instruments uh, versus used instruments? Uh, not a lot, as as I kind of indicated before. Um, what you know, what I, I knew, you know, I knew the the brand names. I knew Gibson, Martin, uh, uh, Guild, Epiphone, things like that. Uh, at least I had some familiarity. I didn't know much about models. I knew I knew more about Martin guitars, I'd say, than anything else, um, because there was a little more information out in the world about that. Um, I was actually, uh, in, in a lot of ways, influenced by, do you know Harry Tuft? I do not. Denver. Well, Harry, Harry uh, back in the early 60s, early mid-60s, started the Denver Folklore Center. I'm sure you've heard of that. Yeah. Um, and and uh, 
And about 1965 or 66 or so, he put out uh, basically a catalog. He put out uh, a, a kind of an inform. A, a, it's a small, very small sized uh, book with maybe, I don't know, 60, 70, 80 pages, something like that. And besides having some things for sale from his folklore center, he also had uh, just general information. And so he had, you know, there were, there were people, people wrote a bunch of articles for him about, uh, again, about Martin guitars, especially, and, uh, and a few other things. And when I was in, I guess I must have been in high school still, I'm no college maybe, Maybe when I was in, uh, so I went to, to Queens College in New York for my undergraduate, and uh, and around that time, maybe just before it, I got I got hold of a copy of this. I probably saw an ad in Sing Out magazine or one of those, and and uh, sent away. Probably paid a dollar for it or something, and and uh, and got this catalog and uh, just poured over it. I mean, essentially, all my information at that time was coming from that catalog. Um, and I thanked Harry many times for it over the years. Um, <laughs> but, but so that's what we knew. We didn't, you know, we didn't have a tremendous amount of, of, uh, of an idea of what things were worth or even what the best models were or anything like that. I mean, that took a little while. Um, and, uh, and, you know, we weren't, there was nobody else in the Midwest that I knew Doing anything like this, and uh, we fairly quickly heard about about uh, George Gruen down in Nashville, of course, and and uh, Mandolin Brothers in New York, who all started a year or two before we did. Uh, once this is once we opened the store, so this is we started we, you know, we started in probably 1971, I think, is when we when we really got together and started doing this. We spent about a year a year looking for things, looking for instruments, and, uh, you know, wound up selling a few. Uh, we actually took consignments, consigned a few for some people, and, uh, and, and basically kind of slowly moved on from there. We, we realized at a certain point that we could sell some instruments, but, you know, how many people do you know? We, it's not like we were taking television ads or radio ads or anything like that. We were just trying to get the word around that we had these things for sale. And, that and, 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 and this was the word around locally, I would imagine, or fairly locally around? No, only locally in, in Ann Arbor. Um, and um, although we actually had a few people come from like Jackson, Michigan, that far away, you know, it's, I don't know, 30, 40 miles from Ann Arbor, something like that. Um, but, you know, mostly almost everybody we knew was in Ann Arbor, uh, certainly musicians that we knew. And uh, but as I say, you know, that kind of ran out pretty quickly. Uh, you know, we all, people only, you know, most people at any given time, especially in those days, would only want to buy like one instrument. <laughs> and we, we'd have 30 of them or 40 of them. And uh, so it was kind of slow, but but good enough somehow we managed to you know we we were living in a in a uh in a kind of a rented room uh in actually in a in a fraternity house uh kind of, there's kind of a long story behind that but but we we had our we had our own separate entrance into the house and and uh and that's also and we had instruments stuffed under the bed and uh and you know sort of in all corners of the not very large room um 
So, <laughs> you know, so that, you know, that can only go on for so long, or it only did go on for so long before we started thinking, well, gosh, maybe, maybe we should open a store. I mean, we didn't know from anything else. Uh, I think if we were smarter at the time, we would have done what, you know, what some people have done over the years, which is they go out and they search for instruments, and then they take them to the store, and they either sell them to the store or through the store. And we've certainly had many people do that through us, you know, once we, once we had a store. Uh, but it didn't occur to us that you could do that uh, and that it could be a viable thing to do. Uh, and we're and we're still talking just just the two of you. Is that correct? Oh yeah, just the two of us. And and, and again in 1971, uh, probably set maybe even late 70 to to 70 in, through 71 uh, or through the end of 71. And then sometime early in 72, we met somebody in Ann Arbor. We in in our in our desperation. Well, I'm not sure it was desperation, but in our in our quest to be able to sell more things with the idea that we could have a store maybe, we actually we set up a booth in an antiques market for, for one weekend. It was a, like some kind of, I don't know, they were advertising, hey, we're going to have this antique market in this place uh, for two days or something like that. And I don't know, we, there was a charge for it. I don't remember how much. And, and uh, we said, okay, well, we can afford a small, small charge there they're charging and and let's see maybe we'll have a lot of people come through who are interested in in uh, in used instruments or at least sell us some one way or the other and that actually didn't work very well at all uh, because we didn't sell anything and I don't believe we bought anything but we met somebody uh, a fellow named Ray Walsh who he was there from East Lansing and he was uh, understand that East Lansing and Lansing, and I'm sorry, East Lansing and Ann Arbor are about an hour and a quarter drive away. So uh, he had gone down to um, to, to to Ann Arbor, uh, kind of with the same idea that we had, which is he had had a used bookstore uh, that he had started maybe a couple of years before, and he already actually had a shop. And he was going down there to see if he could either sell things or buy things or just, you know, get his name out there. It was called the Curious Bookshop, the name of his store, which actually is still in existence as well. Um, and uh, we got, you know, we had plenty of time to chat with Ray because, again, it wasn't, wasn't very busy. Um, and, um, and in talking, he, he looked at our stuff and he said, you know, have you guys ever thought about opening a store? And we said, yeah, we have. But you know, we're not really sure where, where, or how, or what. Uh, at the time, there were, I believe, we counted ten or eleven uh, musical instrument stores in Ann Arbor. I mean, it's not that big of a town. It's, I mean, it's reasonably big, but, but uh, there were just a lot of stores selling musical merchandise. We were just thinking about it at that point. But Ray said, he said, well, there's, there's actually a place right across the hallway from my store. Up in East Lansing, there is a place that uh, that I think you would be able to rent a pretty small store. You could put up a, a very small store for you know probably fifty, sixty dollars a month. So so uh, for, we thought, well, fifty to sixty dollars a month, we can afford that. That sounds like something we could maybe do, you know. And we and again, this was a very small space. We had to actually construct the walls uh, to separate that space from another store. And so somehow or other we did that. Uh, and 
uh, you know, within a month or two after we first talked with Ray about it, uh, we had gone up there, kind of checked out the scene. You know, we, we, we did what we had done in Ann Arbor. We, we said, well, how many music stores are in town? And there weren't many. There was one big music store, one of these everything in music kind of stores. Uh, and that's the only one we could find. Um, and, and I think we even looked in the yellow pages, and that's all we could find. Um, <laughs> and that's kind of how we wound up there. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there are all kinds of, you know, it could be a very, very long story if I told you the whole story. But, but So uh, instant success, the story of, uh, of American dreams or, or, or your typical cold, hard business slog through the years? It was, well, let's just say it started off pretty hard. Um, I, although, again, we had, a, we had a, the $500 cushion and a whole bunch of instruments, actually, by that time. Um, and so we had enough to stock the store. You know, the, the, uh, the original place that we, uh, that we opened up was, I, if I remember correctly now, I, I had a discussion with somebody recently, as, and, and now I'm confused as to whether it was uh, 8 by 10 um. Or ten by twelve, <laughs> the size of the store, uh, and that's everything. You know, that's a, that's all the story. There's no no basement, no upstairs, no downstairs, nothing in the back. That was the whole story. Um, and uh, you know, and we had somehow or other we scrounged up something to use as a counter, as a you know, as a sales counter, uh, and we had a small leather wallet. Uh, that we used as our cash register. <laughs> Something to put in money in case anybody gave us any. Well, you know, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't sound like it took um, you very long to uh, uh, become a lot more sophisticated in, in, in the business. I mean, I, th I think when I first encountered Elderly, it was probably um, in the late 70s, maybe very early 80s. And, and by that time, you were running a very sophisticated op operation. Well, relatively speaking, that's very true. I mean, we, you know, it, uh, we basically word got around. We didn't, you know, we put back in those days, you'd put, you'd put posters around town. You'd put them on telephone poles and and bulletin boards and stuff like that. And that's how we advertised. Um, but, you know, word did get around because it, happily there was nobody to compete with us in terms of what we were trying to do. Uh, and as it turned out, and we weren't, we, you know, I, I don't know that I would have known this for sure, but the way we did it seemed to be unusual too because we were like nice to people. <laughs> and I, I laugh when I say that because I actually walked into the, competition store uh, uh, before we moved up there and uh, I stood around for like 10 minutes in a virtually empty store. It was a pretty big store that had everything from band instruments to, uh, you know, to guitars and such and it had, it had records and it had, I think it even had like, you know, the Victrolas, uh, if, you can, if, if you know what that is. You're, you're old enough to know that. They had a Martin franchise. They had a Gibson franchise. They had all the, all the big names, and, um, uh, and they had, you know, and they had all the band instrument names, too. They were actually, you know, they, they had been in business when we got there in 1972. They had been in business for 25 years, roughly. They, I think they opened up in 1947 or 8. Um, 
and uh, and so that you know they had kind of established themselves as you know the place where mom and dad go to 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 buy their kid a a, a trumpet or, or or a clarinet something for school um, and they I'm not sure when I think by that time they also had had uh, uh, they had a uh, they had a sales force of like twenty or twenty five people that went around the state of Michigan to the schools. At at what at what point in time um, did you decide to sort of expand your your vision? Um, um, in in the late sometime in in that period that late seventies certainly early early eighties. I mean, I was a recipient of. Uh, Oh, uh, you know, on the East Coast here in Maryland, I was a recipient of, uh, of um, I don't know, uh, sort of the musical equivalent to Playboy magazine, I guess, uh, uh, with, with a catalog that you guys so graciously sent me, uh, seems like, on a monthly basis. Uh, it was more, not, not as often as that, um, although at some point along the way, and I'm not even sure what year, we started sending a monthly used instrument list out and maybe you did get that on a monthly basis um although by the early 80s um i we could have at some point along the way around that time we started we split up our catalog our first the first catalog that we did which was in 1975 i believe had 104 pages or 108 pages something like that and um and that covered you know, it, it had kind of a smattering of all the stuff that we had. Uh, you know, certainly it started off with instruments, and then it, it would have, you know, a whole bunch of pages of lists of of, uh, of recordings. And, again, the recordings, uh, not again because I didn't say it before, but the recordings that we always carried were, uh, you know, acoustic music-oriented, um, it, that expanded out a little bit, but you know we never we never had top forty or anything like that. It just wasn't us, and and um, uh, so and then of course there you know there's a section with with books and whole section of of you know everything everything to go with the instruments uh, along with you know oddball things like you know jaw harps and and um, and humanitones. Do you remember what the humanitone was? I do, I am clueless. I I don't have any recollection of that at all. Well, Humanitone was the was the the name that that we would get them under. I think there was only one place in the country that ever made them. Um and but you know the other word for them was nose flute. You've probably seen these things. Some of you you stick it up on your nose and you blow out from your nose and you kind of you 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 can it's kind of in a way like whistling but through your nose <laughs> so you, can, you, you can actually if you're good at it and and most people are not but if you're good at it uh you, it, you first of all if you're if you're halfway good you can you can make a noise and if and if you're actually good at it you can actually play a tune um so um but you look it up, you know, just Google it later. I'm sure they're still around. I'm sure I think we still carry them. I'm not positive. I'm I'm almost af- I am almost afraid to. Is it around that time frame that you began to um uh be acknowledged as a um, a national or even an international um um presence with uh, uh individuals and collectors? I think so. I think by that time we we sort of gotten our foot in the door. 
Um, you know, uh, we were, we, you know, we were all, I always knew that, you know, being up in the middle of Michigan, especially in those days, uh, was not nearly as advantageous as being in New York City or in, uh, or in Nashville or L.A. even or, you know, any place like that, any, you know, lo- large population places. Uh, but because of our catalog, you know, we, first of all, we didn't charge for the catalog. So, and we used to take ads and we had a running ad in Bluegrass Unlimited and, and in Pickin and, and, uh, a whole bunch of magazines, Mugwumps magazine, if you remember that. Um, and, uh, uh, we had a running ads saying that we had a free catalog and, you know, that carried instruments and accessories and, records and whatever else, you know. Um, and, you know, by that time, you know, hopefully we were doing it well enough that, uh, you know, that we got, you know, a pretty good reputation. You know, we, we got pretty close to five stars, <laughs> as you might get on Google. Uh, uh, but we, you know, pretty much got, got good reviews from people. We sent up, you know, we, we, by then we were selling a lot of instruments, um, a lot of new and used instruments. See, I mean, you know, again, we started with used instruments, but it, and it took a couple of years till we got all the brands that we wanted. Uh, uh, but, but certainly, you know, at some point along the way in the '80s, and maybe it was even before that, you know, we Martin told us we were their best dealer. I mean, that kind of surprised us at the time. Uh, but uh, Basically, you know, we were selling a lot of things and people were happy. So what, you know, what more could we ask for, right? Uh, sure. And that's, that's when we learned and realized, of course, that word of mouth is our best, just our, you know, the best advertising we can have. Sure. And and I'm assuming um, that by that time, late 70s, early 80s, that you had outgrown your original storefront. Um, and were you still in East Lansing then or had you... Right. So we moved, our, we opened our shop in East Lansing in 1972. We put out our first catalog in 1975. By 1978 or 79, we were sort of saying, hmm, you know, we're kind of running out of space here. And, uh, and maybe, maybe we need to look for someplace else to go. And, uh, you know, nobody likes to move, right, <laughs> for, for all kinds yeah. of reasons. And, uh, and it took us a while. We, uh, and, and, you know, the other thing that we did, which was fortuitous, uh, and uh, it, but again, it just seemed like the sensible, smart thing to do, was we went to look to buy a building. Um, now, we didn't, you know, it's not like we had all this cash sitting around. I mean, uh, whenever we made money, by and large, it went back into the business, you know, for many years. I mean, we had to, we had to take some kind of salaries, but, but you know, we were li- living pretty, pretty much on the cheap uh, for a very long time. However, there was enough enough business going through that uh, we thought, you know, some bank will probably loan us money to buy a, to buy a building if we, if we find the right building. And uh, it took a little while. Um, by 78, 79, we were looking, essentially looking for someplace else to move. And we, you know, we, there were all kinds of considerations and it, it took a while until we found something, and we we actually by 1980, I think, in in, in around 1980, we we found a um, a Masonic temple, a Masonic hall, in East Lansing that was going up for sale, and was right in the middle of the business district, and we thought, would this be great or what? But of course, uh, 
that that fell through because the uh, all the uh, renovations that were necessary in order to bring it up to code seemed like uh, oh this is not going to work. Um, a year or two after that, the Independent Order of Odd Fellows Hall in Lansing, just three four miles down the road in Lansing. Uh, they put a sign out in front of the building on one day, and my partner uh, saw it, saw that sign the day it, the day it um, it went up. And we went to look at that building that night because, first of all, it was twice the size of the of the Masonic Temple that we had looked at. Uh, it was uh, it was in Lansing. Which was a worrisome thing for us because, of course, we you know we thought that we were tied to the university, and um, and also uh, uh, the 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 renovations required were not as good, even though it was going to cost I think it cost I don't know one hundred eighty thousand dollars, and it was more to buy it, but although it was twice the size as well, um, but that wasn't a lot, and and. And if you know if the banks would give us a loan, which we didn't really know for sure at the time, but turned out that they would, um, then you know you pay it off over time, and and uh, assuming business keeps going well as it had been for seven or eight years by that time, uh, then uh, then we'd probably be okay. And that's what we did essentially in 1980. I may have some of these dates wrong, but in 1982. We we bought that building and then it took it took about three or four months to ha to renovate it, and we did that and uh, and so in, in I think you know like maybe January second or so in in eighty three I think I've got the year right in eighty three we moved in and and that that you know was an adventure in itself just moving everything from the basement. Of our store in East Lansing, which by that time, of course, was not 10 by 12 anymore. I mean, so I'm taking a step back here. The the 10 by 12 store in East Lansing wound up to be 4,000 square feet. Uh, everything, you know, cabinets, uh, retail counters, uh, a repair shop full of full of tools and 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 things, and uh, and racks to you know to put. For storage and all that stuff had to be moved over the uh, over the years, and this is going to be like like the uh, the great leap forward here. Or uh, I through 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 the decades, I mean, th things have changed. They've they they there have been good years, there have been bad years. The uh, the economy is certainly uh, I've certainly lived through a couple of uh, recessions and depressions. And and meanwhile, you guys have continued to to grow. Uh, you're you're not only known as a um, a dealer of vintage instruments, but also you carry uh, quite a few uh, what I, what I refer to as boutique lines. Uh, in in addition to other things, uh, you you've you've got a very large repair shop, uh, and you handle uh, uh, consignment uh, you, and and used how how. Uh, you you've survived all all of these decades. Were, were were there times where you weren't exactly sure of survival, or were you pretty confident that you could get through some of those uh, tougher years? Well, uh, let me put it this way: we got through some of those tougher years, uh, and we're still getting through a very tough year, as you can imagine. Uh, 
Um, but um, by and large, we survived um, by working hard uh, and, and trying to figure out, okay, why are things not working right now? You know, we, we, we were very lucky for the first, I'd say, 20 or 30 years because in those days, um, you know, if, if there was a recession, if the country was in recession, or even if the music business was in recession, even if the guitar business was in recession, our business kept going up. I mean, I'm thinking the days of disco, and, and uh, I can't tell you exactly what those years were, but I'm thinking 676, 77 till early 80s. Uh, and somehow or other, in those days, while other stores, I would, I would go to the NAM show in those days, and I would talk with dealers I didn't know, and, and they'd say, what do you do? And I'd say, well, we have, you know, we have guitars and we have banjos and we have things like that. And, and they said, oh, banjos, we stopped carrying banjos altogether. We can't sell any of them. Well, I don't know. We've never had a problem selling banjos, but that's, you know, that's because, it, you know, it's one of our specialties, I guess. And, and um, but, you know, it's also because other stores just stopped carrying them for a while. Um, and uh, it would surprise me. I'd, I'd hear that. I'd, I'd say, well, maybe there is a recession out there, you know, uh, because you'd hear that there's a recession, right? And, and, uh, and it didn't seem to affect us, not in the early days. Uh, so then, we, you know, once we got into the 90s, now this is a whole different thing. By, by the 90s, we had, we had bought the building next to the Oddfellows Hall that we're in. So we had, we had gone from 12, let me think, 12,000 square feet, something like that, in the Oddfellows Hall to 30, roughly 35,000 square feet. Uh, and the, be adding the building next door plus the the outbuilding that was included in in the backyard in in the sorry in the parking lot uh, of that so it's a pretty big outbuilding that we can just store we store things like boxes in there uh, you know n nothing that we think anybody's going to want to break in and steal um, but um, so so uh, again things were going pretty well. Um, and then in you know the mid '90s, we still con we continued to do well, partly because we got ourselves a website pretty early on. Now I mean once then once you know once once the once people started getting websites, all of a sudden everybody's in the mail order business, and uh, and we had been in the mail order business for 20 years by that time, so we knew how to do mail order. We didn't know how to set up a website. But uh, someone on staff walked up to me once and said, he said, uh, what do you think about, you know, this Internet thing? You think, you think you want to, would you want to have a website? And, and, you know, I had computers. I had like, we had IBM A PCs. We had, we had, you know, computers to do spreadsheets and word processing and that sort of thing. But, but I had never even logged on online to anything until, I don't know, 93, 94 anyway. And and nobody knew. I sure didn't know if this is going to last. And and I said, Brian's Brian Heffern actually is the fellow who who suggested that to me. And and I said, well, you know, I guess you know, what do you think about it? I said to him. He said, well, I think it's going to be a big thing. 
he had by that time he had set up a website, just a you know a small website for himself. He's a musician, and and uh, uh, he had he had set that up for himself. Uh, and while he was at it, he said, "Oh, it wouldn't take that much more to set this up." And you know, the the harder part was having making it so people could make orders on the site because uh, that's a whole separate thing. You need a shopping cart, and how how do you get things into the shopping cart? And you have to you know you have to be able to tell people what it costs to ship. There's all you know. It's just another issue. It's one thing having a website. It's another thing having having a uh, a website with with um, what do you call it? With commerce on it. And right. E-commerce. E- e- yep. So he said, well, I, you know, I've, I've got this set up already. You want me to come show it to you? I said, yeah, sure. And so he showed it to me and I looked at it. I was kind of, you know, my, my eyes were wide open looking at this thing. I was like, wow. Uh, you know, is this, this is what it looks like, huh? This is what something looks like. And really uh, thinking back on it, it was pretty primitive uh, at the time. I don't know how long it took till it was actually online and we started getting orders, but it wasn't real long. Anyway, he'd probably know. Um, but, um, but anyway, so uh, again, that, that was a lucky break for us because we, I didn't have to go out and find, you know, some computer guy who was trying to, you know, make a real living out of this and, and, uh, and have, ask him to set up something knowing full well that, a random computer guy wouldn't have any idea how we do things and what our stuff is is all about. And Brian, however, again, he was a musician, and he'd worked at the store for I don't know eight or ten years by that time, and uh, and he he had he he understood you know what we were trying to do, uh, and it was more than just selling things. So so uh, so it was very fortuitous. He became our you know again within a fairly short time he became our um, our our IT guy didn't even know the term IT at the time, right? Uh, <laughs> and uh, and he, you know, for many years that that went on like that, and 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 he kept improving the website. Um, websites got much more sophisticated. We felt like you know we were we were kind of behind uh, looking at other people's websites. You know, we needed better photos. We needed we needed better, better uh, navigation, stuff like that within the within the site. And Probably better security as well, I would imagine. Oh yes, sure. He was always very very security conscious, so we never really had a problem with that. I mean, I I can't tell you how many people, how many different companies uh, uh, contribute to our website at this point because you know nowadays you you if if you need security, of course you you buy the security and and that. You know, and somebody somebody keeps your computer safe, and and uh, but it's not always that simple. And and uh, and then there, you know, there's special things that we want to have done, like the the three the 360 degree photos um, is a whole separate thing that required a whole lot of setup and uh, and 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 a kind of a, a leap of faith to say, well, are people going to like this? You know, do we know? Uh, I'm still not even sure of that. Uh, but, but, uh, but so there are a lot of different, it's just so much more complicated now. It's a, it's a glorious looking website right now. I'll, I'll, I'll say that. Well, I think, you know, I, what I can say is that we keep trying to make it better. I mean, just visually and, and, um, 
and function, you know, functionally, you know, it has to work fast and all that kind of stuff. Let me ask you, if if I could, in 2005, one of you, your major lines, not only one of your major lines, but of of your string instrument dealer major line decided to blow up their entire dealer network and focus all their attention on one one dealer. Did did that come as a shock to you? And and what kind of pressure did it did it put on the business? Or maybe no pressure at all. Maybe maybe you were just happy to see them go. Well, you know, for a while that that's something that built up over some time. And I don't remember what year this started. But at, at some point along the way, maybe before 2005, um, the, the, the manufacturer you're talking about. Uh, can, we, can we mention a name now? Because the. I, I don't know. It, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty public knowledge. It's Gibson Company. And, um, but for a while, anyway, uh, we were among the chosen few. So, I mean, uh, whenever this was, again, late. I don't know, late 90s, early 2000s, uh, it was decided that, that this company was not going to have 500 dealers like, like it had at that point. Or I don't know what the number was, but it was a lot of, a lot of dealers around the world and around, certainly around the country and around the world. And they decided that they were going to uh, basically have, I think the number was 15 dealers. And we were one of the chosen few. Now, uh, what does that mean? Uh, so it, it means that um, it means that on a practical side of it, it meant that we had even larger requirements for purchasing the product from this manufacturer than we did before. And they, they were always large requirements, uh, to, you know, to be a dealer of this company uh, with a you know with a very viable name. Um, so if you wanted to have these instruments, you had to have a lot of them and you had to have them in depth and, and, um, and that's, you know, that's not uncommon with a lot of larger manufacturers. Uh, I mean, you could say that of almost any of the, I, I don't know much about the band instrument and piano dealer, uh, manufacturers, but certainly, uh, I, I think they fit into this category too. If you're going to, if you're going to carry a big line that is going to bring people into your store, then uh, they expect you to carry the product, to represent it right, um, and, and, uh, and to make sure you keep it in stock. So you sell it, you, you order another one. Uh, or maybe you sell one and you've got three more, you still order another one. You know, at the same time that, that, the, um, that the number of dealers was, was cut down, uh, the prices of all the merchandise went up, uh, and and a lot of other people in the industry followed their lead. Uh, not not in the drastic sense that they did, that they did it, but 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 nevertheless, you know, they were all the prices of of guitars. Let's just use guitars as a as a catch-all for guitars, banjos, mandolins, etc. But but the the prices on those things have just gone up dramatically in the last twenty years or thirty years for sure, um, and uh, it got to the point where uh, you know the I I think that the uh, the major company who, who kind of started this that we're talking about 
Um, they, I think their prices have gone up and then gone down in some cases. Uh, that, I mean, and then that com company has changed hands recently. Uh, it's not clear to me because we're, we don't, we're not a dealer for that company anymore, even with the new ownership. Um, and uh, so it's not clear to me exactly what's happened to the prices except that, boy, it's, it's all a lot more than it used to be. If someone were to uh, thought they wanted to pursue a career into um, music instrument retailing, and, and I note that you have a daughter in, in the business, uh, Lillian, uh, whom I've met, and what I'm, I'm curious what... Uh, if any advice would you give to a a person that would um, thinks they'd like to engage in the business? I'm I'm wondering what what advice you gave to Lillian, and if she accepted it, asked for it, or ignored it. Well, you know uh, that's that's a a, a, a good question, um, and um, I think let's just talk let's talk about the question of if you have if you already have a functioning business. And you have a child who, you know, maybe you would like to have take it over uh, or, or be in the business. And I, I guess my feeling is, we, first of all, we seem to have done the right thing. If I wanted her to work in the business, we seem to have done the right thing. But I can tell you this, I never offered her a job when she was a teenager. I never said, hey, why don't you come work in the business? And, and that didn't happen until she was graduating from college and thinking that she didn't really want to do anything else, but she wanted to work at the store. And, and that's, but so the question is, you know, what would people, you know, what would I recommend to people about this? And I think you have to, it depends on your kid, right? Uh, I mean, I think there are some kids who, if they look like they're kind of interested and uh, and you know start hanging around the store, <laughs> whatever it is, uh, or express interest in in playing certain kinds of instruments, um, I think then you might you might suggest it earlier. I mean, I I never honestly I never had any real belief that Lily would would want to work in the business, much less take it over, and much less even be able to, because when, when, you know, when kids are young and when they're teenagers, those are two different weird times of life. I might have hinted here or there that, that you know, if, if, if things work out, you know, she could maybe, she could maybe work at the store someday, uh, maybe, but I'm, I'm not sure I re actually recall that. She'd know. She she forgets nothing. I forget a lot. Uh, <laughs> maybe it has to do with our relative ages. But, yeah. but, um, but so so as to what you know so so there's that there's the question of of what do you do if you have a, a, you know what, what do you do if you're 73 years old and maybe you want to retire someday um, and uh, and you know the and and. You know, there are a lot of ways to retire, but, um, you know, the ideal way would be to keep your store going, and what better than to have, uh, you know, your daughter take care of it and do do that. And, and uh, fortunately, that's the situation I'm in now. Uh, so I, I, I can say that, that I've been very lucky in that regard, 
you're in such a, a, a niche, I think, with, with vintage uh, stringed instruments. Is, is there a career path for someone in school right now that says, I want to get involved with this? It's a good question. Um, is there a career path? I don't, I think the career path is what most people have done. And there are a lot of people who have started new stores in the last 20 years and that are good stores, at least uh, a lot of them, I think. And, uh, you know, one thing, you know, thing one is, is, you know, you get to play an instrument well enough that you're comfortable just playing it and maybe playing out if you can. Um, and, but at that point, then you start becoming interested in, in vintage instruments. And you start realizing that those are the ones that really people want. And gosh, when I play them, they're the, they sound so good, they're the best, right? Um, uh, although that's not as true anymore now, nowadays when you have all these really good boutique makers. Um, and for that matter, you know, people like Martin and, and, and Bourgeois and Taylor and Collings, things like that. Uh, those are really, really good guitars that are made really probably as well as any, any old ones, but don't have the age and maybe the, the choice of woods in some cases on them that, that make them, you know, as desirable as old ones. But still, so, so the person who's going who's gonna to start the store that here, you know, so if you want to get into vintage instruments, you just got to get into vintage instruments. You have to study up on it. You have to, you have to be exposed to as many as you can, uh, certainly, because there are a lot of people who have been at this point. You can't just start with no idea of what you're doing like we did, frankly, uh, and, and gather the knowledge along the way. I mean, we, I was fortunate to be able to gather the knowledge as it became available. You know, there were a lot of, a lot, just a lot of things about vintage instruments that very few people actually knew back in the early 70s. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only people, you know, it, the people who, who, who got to know the most are the ones who were looking at them all the time. And uh, as well as, you know, finding old catalogs, uh, uh, you know, from the 70s on, there started to be people who, who were writing books about different manufacturers um, uh, and, and, and providing information that other people uh, really appreciated. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking of someone like George Gruen, who, who uh, you know, he was one of the, the, the early stores who, uh, once the vintage instrument business started really moving along, there were other people buying and selling them before he he did for many years actually, but but nobody who who had the prominence that he had because he then went and published. He 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 mm -hmm. published books uh, that gave information to a lot of other people that uh, that they didn't have, and and uh, as well as to the customers, uh, so that you know nowadays. It's not just the dealers who know about these vintage instruments. A lot of customers have, have gotten kind of uh, OCD about the whole thing, and they've learned a lot. <laughs> you know, they've learned a lot. Uh, and, um, and often they're not wrong. Let's put it that way. Sometimes they are. But, but, uh, and sometimes everybody's wrong. So there's yeah. that. But, but, um, but so, you know, so someone starting to do it now, it's hard. Uh, it's hard, and you're going to start at a disadvantage. You know, be honest with yourself, and don't, don't. Uh, I guess don't, don't 
try to fool anybody because you're not going to fool anybody. Any, um, you, would, would you care to put on, uh, stare into a crystal ball and uh, announce where the vintage market is going over the next three to five years? It's very hard. It's very hard because, as you know, you know, starting about 20 years ago, uh, well, I'd say, you know, 2008, I think, is the, is the, the touch point for this. And, you know, when, when basically the country went into a recession um, and, um, and all of a sudden a lot of people who were, had been buying vintage instruments at pretty high prices, and we're talking everything from, you know, acoustic and electric guitars to banjos and mandolins and, and, uh, and related things. Uh, but all of a sudden, the the market kind of died and 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 all of a sudden you know if you could very soon thereafter within a year or two of 2008 you could buy things that were you know maybe a hundred thousand dollars some of these things could only be worth twenty thousand dollars um and it was all over the place it really depends on on which specific instruments but everything was going down with few exceptions there were you know the, the only things that seemed to maintain their value if not go up were things that were um you know in sort of kind of the best of the best meaning uh from a collector standpoint meaning uh super mint condition uh all original um and and very desirable to begin with so where's the you know where's it all going i mean i think i think it's safe to say that those kinds of things will always maintain their value uh but uh but something that's the same thing but maybe has a crack in it or, you know or a repair or something not original uh might be worth quite a bit less than it used mm-hmm. to be it used to be something like that could be worth say 20% less now it could be worth 70% less mm-hmm. uh it just depends and yeah. so what so what's going to happen in the future well I, you know, it's really hard to say for sure. I've never been one to predict, to try to predict uh, the future. There have been a few people in the past uh, who've, who've said, oh, these things are going to always go up. And, uh, but I've never been one to say that. And, um, and I think time has proven me right about that. Uh, but, um, but so the question is, you know, what are these things going to be worth in five years? And what are they going to be worth in in a hundred years, we don't we don't have a clue actually about that. I mean, you look at you look at it and you say, well, gosh, you know, will a will a pre-war Martin D28, you know, which which now maybe could be worth anywhere from fifty to a hundred thousand dollars, let's say, uh, you know, is that going to be worth three million dollars in a hundred years? Kind of like like vintage violins, and the answer is well, it depends a lot on how does how desirable is having an instrument like that at all in a hundred years from now? I mean, will will bluegrass music survive? Will folk music survive? Will pop music survive? All those things that that all those all those genres that really appreciate that Martin D twenty eight say uh, will will they be the big thing or will a whole different kind of music that you know we probably wouldn't understand at all right now? Uh, will that be kind of the main thing? And the answer is, you know, I hope 
those things will maintain their value. But the other thing that really affects this all mm. is, as we were talking before, you know, the, 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 the high-quality and boutique manufacturers, you know, let me just throw out some names, you know, Martin, Martin even Taylor, uh, um, and, and Collings, and Bourgeois, and you can you could name a hundred other really good ones that don't make as many instruments as they do, and uh, and some that do, and um, so those instruments are you know generally speaking of very very high quality, and you know in a hundred years, how are they going to sound compared to a 1936 D28? Um, you don't know. Well, you know, will we find out that, hey, Indian rosewood, that's the thing that really sounds the best after 100 years. <laughs> I mean, we don't know. We don't know. And, and uh, people will probably argue about it ad infinitum. Well, listen, I, I, I do want to m- uh, mention that, uh, uh, first of all, Elderly's uh, website is elderly.com? Yes, correct. Okay. And is there, is there anything at all you would like to touch on before I, I let you go? Well, you know, I would say this. Um, something just because we talked about the catalogs. Uh, in the last week or two, we put up a, uh, a, a kind of a montage of all our previous catalogs on the website. Ooh, I have not noticed. I'll have to go back and listen to uh, watch that. But but it's just it's kind of fun for for someone who who first encountered us in say the late seventies or early eighties like you, um, you'll see all these catalogs you've probably seen over the years and you know hopefully a few of them will give you a good laugh and uh, because that's what they were intended for <laughs> to begin with yeah. and uh, and maybe uh, maybe a little nostalgia from some of the others so yeah. so there's that uh, yeah. and you know the other thing is that is that um, you know we're we're that we didn't talk about really hardly at all is is the the current world situation and how does that how is that affecting everything and uh i can say this we are somehow or other surviving this better than we thought we were going to after about two or three weeks of the shutdown we managed to uh start shipping orders at least of things we had um uh until for another another few weeks when when all of a sudden we were actually allowed to do that mm. officially and then we could have we could have more people in and you know we 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 hadn't caught up completely on shipping our orders at that point but but we did uh get to do that and then of course you know the big thing for us was when when we were allowed to actually open our our showroom uh, with all the caveats that go along with it nowadays, you know, having masks and and uh, sanitize your hands and and we're sanitizing the instruments after you've tried them, even after you've sanitized your hands and 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 uh, you know it's a lot of extra to do um, and we're and for that matter we're only allowing we're not allowing more than twelve people into the showroom at a time, which seems to work pretty well actually. It doesn't you know. Mm-hmm. We don't often have more than that wanting to come in, at least not nowadays. I think a lot of people who, who might, you know, drive out here on a Friday or Saturday and spend eight hours in the showroom just playing guitars and not buying anything, uh, uh, a lot of those people realize that that's not a very practical thing nowadays because we've managed to maintain, retain our entire staff. Uh, short, one or two people had to leave for various reasons, but... 
but uh, most of our of our staff pre-COVID is still with us, and and uh, we're very happy about that. That was Stan Werben talking about elderly instruments growth over the past 49 years with Howard Parker. If you want to learn more about elderly, visit www.elderly.com. You can hear more episodes of Bluegrass Stories on SoundCloud, Apple and Google Podcasts, Facebook, and on katydaily.com. I'm Katie Daly. Thanks for listening to Bluegrass Stories.